The things that used to cause people to blush, they now laugh and entertain themselves on. And so here's the digression that Paul is describing. First, a person joins a, a, a party of sorts. He gets drunk. He commits some kind of immoral sexual act. And he comes to the point where he becomes shameless about his behavior. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are wrapping up chapter 13 in our study of the book of Romans. While the Apostle Paul has spent most of this chapter talking about Christians in relation to government, he closes by giving the admonition that the time of Christ Jesus' next major movement is close at hand. And as such, we need to act accordingly. As the moral climate of our culture is in rapid decline, we must be sober of spirit so we won't be tempted to follow suit. For the second coming to unfold, there's all kinds of prophecy. It is a predicted program. For instance, there must be a one world leader known as the Antichrist. There will be a one world religion. There will be a one world government. There will be a one world economy where no one will be able to buy or sell anything unless they take the name of the beast and the number of his name, which is 666. All of that will take place during a framework that Jesus called the Great Tribulation, quoting the prophet Daniel. For instance, Jesus, when he spoke to the churches in the Revelation, in Revelation 3 and in verse 10, he spoke of that hour of testing which would come upon the whole world. And he was not simply speaking to that one church because he closed it by saying, let those who have ears to hear listen to what he says, not to the church, but to the churches, to this church, to churches across the world. There has never been a time in all of recorded human history where there's been a time of testing that has come upon the whole world. And so the rapture is pictured in the Bible as happening before the second coming. And that's why there's a sense of imminency that it could happen today. When Paul wrote the church at Philippi, he said in Philippians 4, the Lord is near. The apostle James put it this way, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The Apostle Peter said this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The Apostle John said this in his first letter, Children, it is the last hour. And even the Lord Jesus himself, in the final closing verses of the Revelation, he said, Yes, I am coming quickly. And John the Apostle, believing it, could say, Amen, Lord, even so, come, Lord Jesus. He knew that Jesus could come imminently. There is never, ever, ever in the history of the church from its inception on the day of Pentecost ever been a single prophecy linked to the rapture. It could have happened at any moment. But there's all kinds of things still out in the future that have to happen for the second coming. Who would have ever dreamed after 1,900 years of being scattered around the world, that in May of 1949, God would reaffirm Israel in the land. Who would have believed it? The preachers of that day believed it because they had been preaching it for hundreds of years and they were laughed at. But God's Word taught it. Who, who would have ever believed that we would have gone from some 600,000 Jews in 1949, to over 6 million Hebrew people living on that piece of real estate. 
God allowed communism to fall and he allowed Jewish people from all over the world and you go to Israel today, why'd you come? I don't know why I came. God put an eagerness and a desire in my heart to come here. Why? Because God is setting the stage and before it there can be a spiritual rebirth, there must be a physical regathering of Israel. Who would have ever believed that the permissiveness of Noah's day would come to our day? Who would have ever believed that the perversion of Lot's day would come to our day. Well, you should believe it because Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Now, I understand God's timetable is different from ours. Peter said, do not let this one fact escape your notice, brethren, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Nonetheless, I recognize it is much later in the age than many of us probably realize. Listen, when you go into Walmart in October and the Christmas decorations go up, you know Thanksgiving is near. Why is that? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And so when you see God setting the stage as we have in our lifetime in this generation, literally fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy for the second coming, then you know that the rapture of the church is that much more imminent. God is setting the stage for the final drama of the ages. And so you don't need to be asleep at a day of lethargy and a day when men's hearts are growing cold. You need to be awake because it could happen at any moment. An expectant mother came in this morning very pregnant. There are some here in this service. And good news, ladies, you won't be pregnant forever. That baby will come. But you know a mother often thinks, I wonder if today will be his or her birthday. I wonder if when I go to sleep tonight that that little baby will decide to come. Who knows? Maybe today that child will come. We are to be like the expectant mother. Who knows, maybe Jesus will come today. Maybe he'll come sometime tomorrow. Someday he will come. He'll take you either by death or rapture, but he will come and you will have your last day on earth. And so you could paraphrase verse 11. He's saying, look at the time. Look at the hour. It's it's the hour for you to awaken from your passivity. It's the hour for you to awaken from your complacency, from your apathy. Why? Because salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. So wake up. Don't be sleeping when the Lord Jesus comes. Wake up. Look at the spiritual opportunity around you. That's the first truth. It's time to wake up. But not only is it time to wake up, I want you to see today, it is time to get up. You see, it's one thing to wake up and have your eyes open, but it's quite another thing to get up out of that bed. Look, if you will, now at verse 12. He says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, get up and go to work. It's one thing trying to wake up. It's another thing to get up and to go to work. And by the way, this is a common problem today amongst Christians. We come to church and we listen to our adult Bible fellowship teacher and he, he stirs us. We come to the church and we hear the choir sing and they awaken us. We come and we hear the preacher preach and he wakes us up. But while he wakes us up, we don't always get up. We just, when it's all over, we roll over back in bed and we yawn in the face of God Almighty. But notice what he says here. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Again, he's not speaking of a literal day. Obviously, this is a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor. 
The dispensation is ticking away. The hourglass is running out. And the day when Christ returns, Paul says, is almost here. And so in light of that, he is giving us a therefore. Here's the application. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Take off your pajamas, he's saying. Take off your night clothes. Lay aside the clothes of darkness. Lay aside the the spiritual clothing of darkness and put on your clothing of light. Look, when you got up this morning, you changed your clothes. You took off your pajamas and you dressed in a way that was appropriate to coming for public attire. In the same way, God is saying to us as His people, When we get up, we need to take off our spiritual pajamas and we need to put on the kind of clothing that is suitable to be a public witness for Jesus Christ. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We're to put away the deeds of darkness. He's going to uncover that for us in just a moment. But first, he says, we're to put on the armor of light. Now, when you hear the word armor, what do you think of? You think of war. My son sent me a picture there in Afghanistan. It was 120 degrees and he had all his body armor on. I think, man, those Marines, they work so hard for our nation and we should remember that this Veterans Day as they protect our land, all of the armed forces. Armor makes you think of war. And Paul tells us that we're in a war. He said to the church at Ephesus, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggles is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's referring to the agents of evil in Satan's dark kingdom that are warring even today as I speak against his people. And so he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, just before he died and went home to the Lord, said this to his congregation in London. He said, you may sleep, but you cannot induce the devil to close his eyes. You may see evangelicals asleep, but you will not find falsehood slumbering. The prince of the power of the air keeps his servants well up to their work. If we could with a glance see the activities of Satan's servants, we would be astonished at our own sluggishness. And I say amen to that, Charles. And so Paul is saying here in verse 12, he uses this phrase, armor of light, to categorically describe the believer. He does the same in the church with Ephesus, at Ephesus. Therefore, he said, do not be partakers with them, with unbelievers. Why? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You're here today trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because God wants us to be little light bulbs, for our light to shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. So how does the darkness come about? How is it that even Christian people can wear deeds of darkness? Well, he tells us precisely how in our text by underscoring six sins. Look at verse 13, if you will. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. 
Now, when you read a list like this, you might think, why on earth would Paul write to a group of born-again Christians in a very healthy church, one of the healthiest churches in all of the New Testament, and speak of these kinds of sins? Why would he warn the Roman Christians to stay away from these wicked acts? And even more importantly, why would Paul use the first-person plural pronoun to include himself in this warning? I mean, did you pick it up? In verse 12, he said, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Listen, a believer has the capability to do anything. Now, it is true when a person is genuinely saved, they are a new creature in Christ, and their life takes on a new lifestyle, a new direction. But it is possible to interrupt that lifestyle. And sometimes even to the point where God takes us home and He removes us because He loves us and disciplines us with the most severe type of discipline with premature death. But listen, a Christian has the potential to do anything, which is why he told the church at Corinth, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. He's writing to believers. He is warning them that if you ever think that you come to the point where you despise that sin so much, you hate it so much, you disdain it so much, you think it's in my past, I will never, ever, ever do that again. When you begin to think that way, that you will never, ever, and that you cannot do it again, you're tempting the devil to tempt you. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, because no temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And so he says to the church at Colossus, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And the tense of the verb is as such that we are to continually, habitually, moment by moment, put these things away. We're not to cover over the armor of light. And so I'm not surprised the writer of the Hebrews said, let us lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look, you're either green and growing or you're brown and dying. You're either moving forward or you're sliding backwards, but there's no neutrality. You're not to be entangled. Peter said, therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, knowing Christians could hold on to some of these things, then he says that you are like a newborn baby to pursue the milk of the word. James said it this way, lay aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility. Receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. Some of us have clogged spiritual arteries and we cannot hear the word of God where we grow in respect to our salvation, where it roots in our life because there's some things that we've allowed that we've compromised and it's clogging the work of God in our life. And so I'm not surprised by any of these commands because I recognize we have the potential to do anything. Now follow carefully what he says. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. You see the three knots? He is listing six sins, but it's structured in the Greek New Testament as seen in our English Bible with three pairs. Three pairs that go together. The first pair is carousing and drunkenness. It's the Greek word komos, and it speaks of riotous, wasteful, 
decadent leisure time. Some of the trans translations, like the ESV, translates it orgies. It lifts a little bit of the cloud off of it and makes it very bright. In Rome, every March 16 and 17, there was a celebration to the god of Bacchus, and they would involve in this they would be involved in this wicked kind of behavior. And Paul remembers writing to believers in Rome, many of whom who made this an annual celebration, who came out of this kind of background. No different today for many Christians who are li- who have living memories of some wicked spring breaks or some trips that they made to Mardi Gras or Las Vegas. And so Paul pulls no punches. He is reminding us we're not children of darkness. We are the children of the light. The second pair beyond carousing, notice the word drunkenness, not in carousing and drunkenness. So even today, whether it's in New Orleans or whether it's in Las Vegas or Daytona Beach, there are drinking parties and drinking movements that happen all across our nation, whether it's in the local bar room or in the fraternity house or the sorority house or wherever it may be. And so often with carousing comes drunkenness. The two are a pair in Holy Scripture. Do you remember what the prophet Habakkuk warned? Woe to you. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. This verse speaks of a person who makes his neighbor, his girlfriend, his whoever it is, drunk. Why? So they can look on that person's nakedness. Drinking and immorality go together. Why? Because a person, when they begin to use alcohol, they begin to lower their standards. An article caught my attention on the front page of USA Today dealing with college students who drink. It was one of the most extensive studies done by a group of Harvard researchers who now say 80% of all college students use alcohol. Young people, when you go to the university and you choose not to drink, you will be a minority. You will be looked down upon even by Christians who are so flagrant in this day who are so accommodating in our day, who will try to convince you that if you don't drink and you're committed to abstinence, you're a legalist. I'm coming to that in Romans 14. You may not want to be here for that. But what did they find in their study? 54% reported regular hangovers. 44% of the students surveyed reported blackouts. 39% said they didn't know how they got home on one occasion or another. We saw that recently, did we not? 34% reported throwing up. 22% found out later they had sex. Not that they had sex because they drank, but they found out later after they drank that they had had this relationship. In the Bible, the two go together. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the book of Proverbs and go to chapter 23 for a moment. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, one for every day of the month. And I began to, with my wife to help our children to learn Proverbs every day. Even today, when the grandkids go down, she's playing Proverbs every morning, and she's teaching them as their parents are teaching them. To this day, my children as adults read a chapter, among other things, in Proverbs every day. It's a book that will help you to live a wise life. I, in my mind, have divided it into three parts, and I've tried to create in my mind a chapter title for each chapter. And I call Proverbs 23, Deception and Booze, because those are the two key themes in the 23rd chapter. Look at verse 19. Sounds like you found it. Listen, my son, 
and be wise. Here's a father speaking to his son. And I'm so sure he could say the same thing to his daughter to keep her on the straight and narrow. My son, be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Look at as he pleads again in verse 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Here's a father warning his son and here's a pastor in this pulpit today warning his people. And I can promise you that the alcohol industry will never give you the same kinds of warnings that you will read here in Proverbs. He just told us in verses 20 and 21 that the sin of drunkenness can lead to poverty. One of my uncles had one of the most successful construction companies in the city of Boston in all of New England. And he got engaged in alcohol and I watched him as a teenager drink away millions of dollars into poverty and he died drunk in a room in Worcester, Massachusetts. But this father like Habakkuk, also links drinking to sexual immorality. And so sandwiched between his exhortation in verses 20 to 26 to stay away from alcohol and his warning a second time in verses 29 to 35 about alcohol, he now speaks of the pitfalls that go with it. Look, if you will, at verse 26 again. Give me your heart, my son, and let not your eyes, and let your eyes delight in my ways. That's a great thing for a dad to be able to say. Son, live like your daddy lives. I hope you can say that. Then he says, verse 27, for a harlot is a deep pit and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. And then again, he immediately picks up the refrain on alcohol again. This father, thinking and writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, links the two together. He's saying in essence, son, if you drink alcohol, it will cause you to go into the sin of immorality. And there's nothing quite like alcohol that will cause a person to lose control of his mind, to lose control of what he ought to do where that lower, baser, sinful nature kicks in. Evil men have always known that if you want to seduce a woman, you get her drunk, and things that an otherwise virtuous woman would never do, she would do when she's drunk. And when people start drinking... They start losing control. As a pastor, I cannot tell you how many people, because the entry level for so many people into the church today is a crisis in their home. Why did you come? Well, because my wife, my husband committed adultery. Give me the details. They went out with the boys. She went out with the girls to the bar and they began to drink. And before you know it, they were immoral. That's the first pair. He links them together, carousing in drunkenness. Look at the second pair. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing in drunkenness. Then he says, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Now, these two are closely associated like the first pair. The first pair, the first word here, sexual promiscuity, translated immorality or sexual impurity, depending on your Bible, is the Greek word koite. It refers to a bedroom. The King James renders it not in chambering. Sometimes the word is used in a positive way, like of the marriage bed. But very often it's used in a negative way. And so today we even use the expression, well, he went to bed with her, speaking of sexual promiscuity. Not in sexual promiscuity. And then he adds, 
and sensuality. And this is an interesting word because it's a word that refers to shameless sensuality. The King James calls it wantonness. And it's everywhere around us. It's staring us in the face. There are a few movies today that are produced that do not have this kind of sensuality that is shameless behind it. It's in the teen magazines that little girls are reading. It's in the women's glamour magazines. It's in the men's sports magazines. Sensuality is all over the internet. It is all over the television. It is all over the music that people are listening to. And again, he uses a particular Greek word that speaks of someone who's not only captivated by their sexual immorality, but they are shameless about it. And that's our day. People promote it in such a way that they are shameless about it. Like in the prophet Jeremiah's day, there are no more red faces. He said no one even blushes anymore over sin. The things that used to cause people to blush, they now laugh and entertain themselves on. And so here's a digression that Paul is describing. First, a person joins a a party of sorts. He gets drunk. He commits some kind of immoral sexual act. And he comes to the point where he becomes shameless about his behavior. And he has no problem telling you about it, about exploiting others and laughing about it. And let me just address the dads for just a moment. Dad, you are called to be the leader, the protector and the provider for your home, not just in the physical realm, but the protector in the spiritual realm and the provider in the spiritual realm. And if you let this kind of sensuality in your heart first, it will come into your home. You will lose the spiritual steel in your spine that you need. And before you know it, it will be through the TV. It will be in the music. It will be in the internet. And you will fall asleep spiritually. And you will not have the backbone to protect your wife and your children. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think there is so much adultery amongst even Christian people? It doesn't just happen. There's a process that leads up to to that. Most of you men and women would want your spouse to be faithful to you until death breaks the relationship. Is that not true? Of course it is. Well, you better hold each other accountable. You say, well, that would never happen in our marriage and in our home. You tell that to the woman I counseled this week who calls me up and tells me that her husband of 20 years left her for a younger woman. There's a process, and he says, lay aside the garments of carousing and drunkenness, of sexual promiscuity and shameless sensuality. Notice the third category, not in strife. And jealousy. I think this is interesting that he puts this at the end because you see there's a lot of church people who read these six sins and they say, well, I've never been drunk. I've never been unfaithful to my wife. But they're characterized by contention, by bickering, by petty disagreements. If the church is caught up in dissension, how can we possibly be the salt and light we are called to be in our culture? We'll address that issue Monday when we conclude our message from Romans 13 entitled, God's Clock. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Romans series, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request program ROM64 on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877 877- 
787-787-7478. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found at the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And also check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. Monday, we conclude our message, God's Clock, part of our ongoing study in Romans. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.